1: Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Circe Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Roman Roads Media, a publisher of classical Christian curriculum designed for homeschoolers and homeschool co ops. And they're back this month with a giveaway for Circe Podcast listeners. Each episode, they're going to be giving away one of the 16 units from their Old Western Culture series featuring Wes Callahan, a high school video course that guides you through the great books of Western civilization. Complete with workbooks, discussion questions, and readers, Wes Callahan draws from decades of teaching experience as he tells the story of Western civilization, integrating history, literature, theology, politics, philosophy, and so much more. So here's how to enter the giveaway. When this episode is posted over on the Cersei Facebook page, just leave a comment saying which unit of the Old Western culture you would choose if you won. Then one of those comments will be drawn at random three days after the episode is posted. To browse the available titles in the Old Western Culture series, just head over to romanroadsmedia.com. That's romanroadsmedia.com. And to find the Cersei Facebook page, just go to facebook.com slash Circe Institute. So thanks to our friends over at Roman Roads Media for making this show and other ones like it possible. And with that, let's get you to today's episode episode enjoy hello and welcome to close reads here on the Cersei institute podcast network i am david kern and as always on close reads i am joined by angelina stanford and tim mcintosh angelina and tim welcome back to the show how's it going
2: it's going good i feel like we should say you're like broadcasting live from cincinnati
1: yeah, I mean, I am broadcast. I'm sitting on the 27th floor of the Hilton Netherlands Hotel in downtown Cincinnati. Uh, I am here along with Graham and my parents for a homeschool convention. We are doggedly working, selling, giving elevator pitches, um, you know, promoting books, and selling in my mind, selling like close reads mugs
2: outside your outside your hotel room, like ears pressed against the door, trying to hear the the magic happening. <laughs>
1: I mean, I'm going to say this. I am not looking through the peephole, and so I don't know that that's not happening right now.
2: <laughs> okay, well, let's being just, the empiricist that I am, I'm going to roll
1: with that. Let's just pretend. So, evidence to the contrary. Yeah, I mean, I can't prove whether or not that's happening right now, so we'll just assume that it is. Tim, how are you?
0: David, I'm doing great. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's...
2: What is that
0: voice?
2: <laughs> <laughs> David, I am fine. How
1: are you? It's reluctant,
0: Tim. It is so meaningful to me. It fills me (laughs) with feelings. (laughs) All right. I won't ask next time then. (laughs) No, I, here in Eugene, Oregon, springtime is sort of this cosmic battle between the forces of darkness and the forces of light. And every day is sort of, you really don't know who's going to win. If the cloudy, dreary winter weather that just sort of doesn't rain, but sort of spits and drools is going to win. Uh-huh. Or if the bright, glorious, like, yellow light of heaven will prove victorious. And today, the yellow light of heaven is is victorious. It does such wonders for everything in this city when the sun is actually out.
2: Those 12 days a year?
0: Hey, don't exaggerate. 13. <laughs>
1: I thought I thought you were going to be a little like I thought this darkness and light was going to be much more um, interior. Yeah, that, I thought this was going to be little more little about
0: down, you. Down, yeah. Oh, down, I'm down. I'm so sorry.
1: You didn't you didn't mean it as a metaphor. You actually meant it. I
0: actually meant it. <laughs>
1: Got well, you it. you okay.
2: setting this up like a Flannery O'Connor story. I'm super disappointed. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah. So um, there were
1: stories
2: ever in, and then the sun came out, and it lived happily ever after. <laughs>
1: right. Right. <laughs> well, theoretically, maybe most of them.
2: Ooh, that's David. A great. That's, that's metaphorically, brilliant. though. That's metaphorically, which for me, metaphor is always more real
1: anyway. So I can roll with that. So um, as we mentioned, I am here in Cincinnati. I am do not have my whole my whole set here. So I'm I'm just connected by the old uh, the old Apple headphones. So if um, the quality is not you know what you're used to, then I apologize for that. I also have no idea how good the Wi-Fi is here. So at any point, it's possible that the Hilton could dump us. Um, in favor of a better podcast. Um, <laughs>
2: it's probably a bunch of podcasts going on in the convention, honestly.
1: <laughs> well, uh, we are here to talk about this this is the penultimate story. Uh, last week I said it's the story before the penultimate story, but this is the penultimate story in Flannery O'Connor's collection, Everything That Rises Must Converge. Um, it is called Parker's Back. Uh, we will talk about that this week, and then next week we will conclude the collection with uh, Judgment Day, which, as uh, we mentioned previously, was unfinished and will therefore lead to some, I think, interesting conversation related to that um and then after that we're going to go ahead and do A Q&A episode so make sure you're sending your questions in to us over on the close reads facebook group of course if you have not yet joined that group head over to facebook you know assuming you're on uh that bastion of social media um entertainment i don't know um and uh join that group and send your questions in and we will answer as many of those as we can um, uh, my goal is to at least, at minimum, answer one question on each story, and then a couple of general questions. So, if they fit into one of those categories, that would be great. If there's something we did not talk about in a previous story, then you know, go ahead and submit a question, and we'll make Angelina answer it. Um,
2: oh, wow! Okay. <laughs> Punch it to Tim. So it's all good.
1: <laughs> um, but uh, we are here to talk today about Parker's back, as I said. Um, so let's go ahead and do that. Um,
2: Okay, so before we jump into the story, can I can I just say like a little thirty second thing because I feel like if I don't get it in, we're gonna do Flannery O'Connor and I'm never gonna tell the story and I'm gonna really regret it.
0: Tim, what do you think? Ah, uh, gosh, I'm really skeptical.
2: It has now taken more time to decide about the story than it will <laughs> to tell.
1: It. It's risk. It's know. risky. It's risky. But go ahead. Mm-hmm.
2: All right. So a few years ago. Driving down the road and up ahead I could see that there was this car parked on the side of the road and it had the tire jacked up.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it had the tire jacket, had a flat tire. And as I got closer, I could see that it was a hearse.
1: <laughs> oh, oh man. And the
2: guy gets out of the hearse and he's in his suit and he's changing the tire. And I realized, oh, this 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 hearse is in official use. <laughs> So as I'm driving up, I think two things at the exact same moment. One I think is, oh, there's the guy that's late for his own funeral. Uh (laughs) And the the other thing I think is, there is a Flannery O'Connor story in this moment.
0: No doubt. No doubt. So
2: that's it. That's the story of the guy who's late for his own funeral.
0: Well, why why have you not subsequently
1: written a Flannery O'Connor style story?
2: I should totally do that. Imagine the things that that guy was thinking as he changed this tire with this dead guy in the car.
0: I wonder. I wonder what he was thinking. Hey, Angelina. I, I have to tell you
1: this. Our listeners will think this is hilarious. I just got a text from Graham, who is um, an eighth of a mile down the road in a bunker of a convention center. And I'm on the 27th floor of a hotel. And Graham just texted me that, and he said... Tell Angelina I can hear her from across the street and I'm in a loud building.
2: <laughs> uh, see, our listeners need to know this is the running joke. <laughs> is that every time I, I, I talk to someone at the office, they'll, they'll always say, Oh, yeah, I can hear you. I can hear you in the soundproof room through David's headphones. <laughs> Which I don't even know how that's possible, but okay. Well, I do have
1: very powerful headphones that I sometimes leave up too loud, so that might be part of it. But anyway, I thought you'd enjoy that. Um, that's it's great. Ap- you know, it's apropos of nothing that we're talking about, but. Um, well, let's talk Parker's back. So, um, as you mentioned, um, that that is something of a O'Connor story there. But I'm curious um, how you respond. Each of you respond to this story how did it feel similar or different to her other work because we're far enough into this collection that mm-hmm. we have a really solid context for the way she does things mm-hmm. um and you know a lot of the stories follow a lot of the same patterns but every now and then she'll drop something in a little different and i'm curious if 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 you guys agree that this either feels similar to a lot of her other work or if it feels like something of a departure so tim i want to ask you that question first
0: I think it feels, it has all the elements. Oh, gosh, this is a great question. Um, It has a lot of the similar elements. I think one thing that I really noticed in this story as being a little bit different is I sensed that O'Connor seemed to have a little bit more empathy with Parker. I don't know if Uh you guys felt that or not, but... it it was hard to detect that she felt a lot of sympathy or empathy, I should say with somebody like Shepard. She just, I don't think it was scorn that she had for Shepard, but it was not, she was really driving an ideological point. And I don't know why I, it just seemed to me like her stance toward Parker was a bit softer. He is in, in, He's no different in many ways than Shepherd, as far as like like the condition of his heart is. Uh-huh. But there was some way in which his plight seemed to draw a more tender hand from O'Connor, as opposed to say Asbury in
1: The Enduring Chill or one of the other. Yes, characters. yeah, that's right. Okay, that's right. Interesting.
0: I think which is I, not to say that she didn't have empathy for Asbury or Shepherd. It just seemed to me like. Her sympathy for for Parker came through more strongly in this one. And you just created, you just used two different words that I think are really fascinating to
1: think about because you said empathy and sympathy. And Mm. as readers, those can be two different things, but especially as writers, Mm. I think in the way a writer seems to feel about one of her characters, whether she has sympathy or whether she empathizes with them can be very different and they can come across in different ways in a story. So would you say that she is more sympathetic or more empathetic with Parker than the other characters in her, the other protagonists in her stories?
0: That's another great question. I should probably say sympathetic. I think that the empathy was from me, the reader. I I felt more empathetic toward Parker. I think that O'Connor displayed a little bit more sympathy. I think it'd be hard for her, maybe I'm wrong, I'm trying to get into her head probably a little bit too much, but I think it's probably a little bit harder for her to empathize with a character that she probably knew, but probably personally couldn't identify with as deeply as she could, let's say, with somebody like Asbury. Because she seems to share so much um, the biographical... Similarity to somebody like Asbury.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Parker does seem like he's less a like literary doppelganger for herself than some of the Uh other characters. Uh Uh-huh. But I I like this. um, I, I think sympathy is the word I probably would have chosen too. That she seems to have more sympathy for this character than she does some of the other characters who even as she might empathize with the way they think, she doesn't necessarily sympathize. Like she doesn't view them as thinking the right way yeah um, even but she, there's people who think wrongly about the world or about faith or themselves or whatever but she can empathize with that but that doesn't mean she sympathizes but here it almost does seem like that's been inverted angelina what about you going back to my original question and i do want to keep track of whether that, that idea of, of o'connor's sympathy for parker as the story goes on and we talk about it um but angelina your impressions as far as the, dif- the similarities and differences between this story and the other ones
2: I had a very similar reaction to to Tim, where I thought all the elements are here, like I would know this is a Flannery O'Connor story, but it felt very different to me. And uh, it wasn't until I got to the end that I thought, "Wait, I read this story, and I didn't despise anyone in it." You know, usually, usually, you know, there's somebody that we're like, Oh, this person," you know, "Ooh," and then there's the reversal when we realize, "Oh, we're just as bad." I, I didn't have that. I didn't have that moment. Uh, and and uh, I actually i found the character of parker was fascinating i cannot believe that i didn't remember this story i mean my notes are in the book so i know i've read it before but uh i didn't remember it and i just loved it isn't it great angelina i laughed so hard I, i just underlined almost the whole thing i thought the character of parker was fascinating and so well done so um just to give a little context Flannery O'Connor had been hospitalized uh, for the final time at this point and oh. knew she was at the end. The doctor had said, you know, it, it's over. And um, but of course, Flannery O'Connor can see the humor in anything. And he sent her home and said, you know, you're too weak to do any work, but you could you could do a little writing. <laughs> Which, Chuckle, you know, made her, made, her, made her laugh. Thanks. And uh, so she went home and, and wrote this story which was the last one that she wrote and, and finished it and then died a couple of weeks later. And what I have always wondered is, is when someone knows that death is coming, you know, what does that do to a person? Like I sort of imagine that it kind of pulls back the veil a little bit, right? And, and things become very much in focus. And so I felt that way about this story. Like It doesn't surprise me that at the end of her life, Flannery O'Connor would be very, I just love everybody, you know? We're all just a mess. And, you know, it doesn't surprise me that it was a more sympathetic treatment.
1: Hm. Well, do you think that, I mean, the character of Parker himself, I'm trying to think of, if we compared him to an Asbury or one of the other characters, do you think he deserves more sympathy than most of the other characters in her work? Just inherently, like he has a character himself,
0: regardless oh, I of... I think so. I think so. Why? Why do you think so, Angelina?
2: His struggles seem to be primarily internal, but he's not lashing out at anyone.
1: Like he's not Mm. cruel to other people. You mean, like, like how he's
2: not cruel? We don't see him being cruel, or I mean, in fact, we see him being kind. I mean, those that courtship, that description of that courtship was so fantastic. Oh, it was great. All right, take us there. Let's
1: let's start there. That's a good place to start, I think, as we talk about the story. So, take us the
2: whole because I. Actually, I think it's a metaphor for, for the larger thing of what's happening, how God is drawing him, right? Like, he's he's fighting it, and I don't want anything to do with this girl, and I don't even know what I'm doing, And but here I am, and here's apples. I'll come back with peaches. I have no intention of coming back with peaches. Here are the peaches. And, and, and just th- this force, this thing's bigger than him are pulling him along in this direction, and he's fighting it, which, of course, is what he's doing to the larger spiritual epiphany as well. But my favorite line that I laughed so hard at, because I just thought, oh man, this is, this is so, this is life right here. He made up his mind then and there to have nothing to further to do with her. They were married, in the county ordinances all. <laughs> I mean, know,
0: so <laughs> good. I mean, That's so a great, great. yeah. The
2: juxtapositions in this story are so great, and you just see this internally conflicted man who's being carried along by forces bigger than him. And so, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think we see him he's a little bit of a slacker on the job but honestly we don't see him doing anything despicable
0: he's a little bit prickly with his wife but he's not But she's
2: kind of prickly with him too and yeah they seem absolutely to, i mean they kind of fit that way you know she's kind of no nonsense and they kind of have a little shtick going between the two of them
0: well we don't
1: need to, we don't need to do anything else beside her ex- other than how she's described in the first paragraph right It says that she was plain, plain, and then it says the skin on her face was thin and drawn as tight as the skin on an onion, and her eyes were gray and sharp like the points of two ice picks. So that's like classic metaphor description thing going on there, right? Where the author gives us a metaphor, so the uh, the idea of an onion and the ice pick and all that, but also it's more than just how she looks. There's like, you don't just choose an ice pick and an onion to describe how someone looks if they don't actually, if there's not something within them and about their character that is consistent with those two choices. Mm-hmm. absolutely so she you know she's she makes you cry when you cut her
0: <laughs> oh David Oops. that was so good <laughs> uh I didn't see that coming that was really good but do you th- um
1: do you not think that i mean how do you respond to her though we talked about whether parker parker deserves sympathy do do you don't despise Sarah Ruth either than Angelina? You think she is sympathetic as well?
2: I did not despise her. Although I realized at the end that, you know, the reversal is she's the one who can't see God.
1: Mm. And, of course, we talked about the O'Connor reversal at length in this podcast.
2: Right. So, I mean, but I don't think that she is to be despised either.
1: Angel- I mean, she uh,
2: seems very much caught up in in her world and her upbringing. You know, she just sees the world the way she's been shown to see it.
1: Yeah, Tim, how do you feel about about her? You you were sympathetic towards him, but you didn't mention her. Do you do, do you agree with Angelina that she? Well, maybe not. Um, not likable is
0: not is worth some sympathy. Well. <sighs> I think she is worth some sympathy. I, I agree with Angelina. I feel like at the end of the story, we, O'Connor briefly puts us into her, kind of puts the, places the narrator next to her very briefly on the, on the last page. And that made me think that what has happened with Parker, maybe the inauguration of it, and, sorry, let me back up, this kind of journey that um, Parker has been on, where he has this deep but vaguely unsettling sense of the value of his life, whether his life has any value or not, it seems like that's one of the main things that he's wrestling with. He is working out, and he's pursuing, in some strange way, a, a sense of his own being and worth, and whether or not whether or not God exists. And I feel like at the end of the story, Sarah Ruth begins that journey. We just see she's about to step into that. Assimil- it's going to look very different. She's not going to get a tattoo of Jesus on her back. But I wonder if she is about to inaugurate the same kind of journey that Parker goes on in this story. Maybe that's hopeful thinking, but there have been worse things than hoping that someone comes to a safe acknowledge of God. (laughs) It may be a hopeful, hopeful interpretation on my part because there's scant information given, but that's kind of what I, what I leave hoping for. I, if you guys want to continue pursuing this line, then let's, I want to keep pursuing this line before the end of the podcast. I really want to talk about a discussion we had probably three podcasts ago that you started, David, about Flannery O'Connor's um, kind of staging a play, because for me, this story is the most stageable, and, it, and part of the reason why Angelina touched on it. There's this juxtaposition between the words of a character and the actions of the character.
1: Yeah, actually, let's yeah. go ahead. Let's go there because I think that other stuff we're going to talk touch on anyway as we talk about the other these other ideas. So yeah, take that away. Let's talk. Let's
0: talk about that. Well. Part of I think when we talked three weeks ago about staging a Flannery O'Connor story as a play, one of the things that's hard for me to imagine is how you would how you would stage the inner dialogue that the characters have. Because let's take um, uh-huh. Mrs. Turpin for an example. So much of the story of Revelation is her silently putting everyone in categories and she ends up in the top category. She's kind of well-born and hardworking, you know, staging that is exceptionally hard to do without having your main, having your character step to the audience and monologue, which is kind of a drama killer in some ways. I mean, Shakespeare is an exception, but Shakespeare is an exception for a variety of different ways, including extraordinary talent. So, One of the obstacles to staging an O'Connor play is that how do you convey that ironic inner voice or the ironic narrator's voice that O'Connor puts in all of her stories? And I think in this story, you really, a lot of the internal dialogue manifests itself in Parker's conversations with other characters. He... He could say, I'm never going to come visit you again, uh, Sarah Ruth. And then next scene, he's visiting her again. And that kind of like juxtaposition between what his mouth says and his actions, that's what makes plays so fun and exciting. Because you recognize there's a rupture somewhere. There's a divorce somewhere deep inside that person that they're saying one thing and seem to be totally committed to what they're saying, and their actions undermine what they say their act and, and their actions are like real life they're the more powerful conveyor of what a person of where a person actually is
2: I love that observation because I think that actually. And and I'm sure it's deliberate on her part, but I think that that supports the overall theme of the story, which is this very external versus internal thing that we've got going on, right? Uh So the story starts off with all these external images, right? The the fact that he thinks if she painted her face, it would improve it. And that's what he's done, right? I'm just going to fix my outside, and that's going to fix my inside. And it made me wonder, too, what the significance was that he hated pregnant women, and it, and I think it's because there's something internally real in a pregnant woman. Like there's a life in her, and he's very everything's external for him. That's how he interprets reality. She needs makeup. I need. She needs to be painted. I need to be painted. It's all the exterior stuff.
1: Yes. And by the way, I want to just mention that that's the kind. You know, people when people say that O'Connor's not funny, or that they they like hear that people think O'Connor is funny, and they think that's weird. That's the kind of example where she's hilarious because that comment itself seems like on the surface it seems really awful and then you think about it and it seems really funny and then you think about it further and it seems really deep and so she can lace that humor and that depth all together like there's so it's little little quips like that are so complicated Um, anyway carry on though I just think that's a great example of where she's funny and and you know doing something really powerful at the same time
2: yeah, and that whole courtship scene I thought was very funny but also very profound and and was a microcosm of his larger spiritual struggle. Cuz he's also he's resisting God in the same way, right? I don't need to be saved. I don't need to be. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's just pulled along and when he's going through the tattoo book, that was so fantastic. I oh, loved, yeah. I loved where he can't look at it. I mean, because the and the image, the Byzantine Christ image, this is this is Christ the Panto crater. I don't know how you say it. Is that How you say it? Yeah. So that's, I think so. That's, that's Christ the Almighty, and it's a it's it's a it's a it's my favorite of the images, and uh, it's very intense, right? It, it, because it represents not Shepherd Jesus or peaceful Jesus. This is Jesus the Almighty, mm-hmm. and and so I love the, that that he can't look at it. He doesn't want to see it on his back. He can't look at it in the book. He doesn't because. That's what it's like to see God Almighty. You can't look on that, right? He's, he's having awe, and and he's you know he's having this moment where he's responding to holiness, and he he doesn't have to look because he says he feels the eyes on him already. Um, and the shirt, I mean, it's very much like Moses putting the shirt over, and he even t- she describes it as a veil. They unveil. Yeah. It and they put the veil back on. I mean, it's a it's an image of holiness, and so when he shows that image of holiness to her, she beats him. You know she. She doesn't respond to the image of holiness. Well, first she says she doesn't recognize it, which that's that's significant too. She doesn't recognize it. I don't know who that is. She said, and then when he says it's well, it's God, it's Christ. You know, she she beats him for it. But
1: yeah, God doesn't I'm, have an image. She says,
2: right? God's a spirit. Um, which and, of course, Flannery O'Connor would be. That's a very modern versus kind of medieval. Yeah. Thing about what is the appropriate way to to think about God? um of course it's not an image of god it's an image of christ and christ is in the incarnate image of god so it's it's theologically it's a different issue but at the very beginning when he first has that experience where he sees the tattooed man you know he, what that sparks i thought that was so interesting what it sparks in him is a sense of wonder and like a radical
0: a, otherness something yeah, is this man yeah. is not to be placed so, in my yeah. The experience that I've Suddenly had
2: the world is just way bigger to him. And he goes on this journey where ultimately wonder turns to awe. But, you know, there's lots of church fathers who say, you know, the beginning of belief is wonder. No one can be a Christian who does not start in wonder. Mm. Um, so she, I think she's tapping into all of that. I mean, I believe that wonder is the beginning place of education, period. And that's why I say, you know, start with fairy tales because they, they create wonder in us. But So I just thought it was interesting that he he sees that tattoo when he's 14 and it sparks that wonder, which ultimately gets transformed into awe and then a true spiritual conversion.
0: Do you guys in your own life, have you had a moment like Parker had with the tattooed man, like when you were a young person? Did you think this thing that I'm seeing does not fit? It, it, I cannot kind of make sense of it given my experience as a young person.
2: Oh, yes, all the time.
0: All the time. There wasn't, like, a moment. It it seems like, for for Parker, this was something unique and groundbreaking. You can't think of an instance which kind of kicked it all off, Angelina?
2: Uh, Possibly my obsessive reading of Middle Eastern fairy tales as a child, which I've been thinking a lot about that lately, that that was much more that shaped me in in ways that I'm still trying to figure out. Um, I I was given a copy of it when I was four and I I mean, I must've read it a thousand times. Uh, I read it way before. I didn't read European fairy tales till I was grown up.
0: And there was something about those fairy tales that just kind of, you couldn't, you couldn't place them.
2: They're, they're very dark (laughs) and I loved them. I wasn't, I was shockingly not put off by the darkness, but was intrigued by it. Um, but I, I, I really I just related so much to this story because I have had this happen where I feel like I've had some kind of mystical spiritual epiphany that mm-hmm. has somehow created a, 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 a significant shift in me, and at the very beginning you often can't explain it, right? You, it takes a while before you figure out, oh, this is what has happened, and now I'm, I'm somebody different, right? But when you're in the throes of it, you just know this is intense, this is real, this is life-changing, this is significant, right? And I can remember trying to share that with my closest friends, right? And, did they, and could they understand? No. So, yeah. I mean, I, and, and in fact, I've had similar situations where I wasn't beaten with a broom, but I was rebuked. Oh. So when he goes off and cries, like, I I, I get that. I yeah. know what that's like to feel like the whole world has just opened up to me, and I understand new realms that I have never understood before, and I'm getting rebuked by someone who, who can't understand what I'm saying. Ow. Also, It's also a failure of language on my part at the very beginning, just not being able to articulate it, but just – you know you're so raw in that moment you're so vulnerable like you you know i'm sure lots of people have that experience when they become converted to christianity where they just feel like i don't even know everything that just happened yep. but i'm different now and then you try to explain that to somebody and they're like so you found religion you, so you're going to going to church now you know mm-hmm. they mhm and and that that hurts that hurts in in that moment
0: but you cannot in those instances formulate articulate Maybe you can formulate articulate thoughts to yourself, but articulating them to other people is well nigh impossible.
2: Right. Right. Absolutely. You can only do that way after the fact. I can remember a moment now, Tim. I can remember a moment. It's coming to me. I remember being a little girl and seeing two grown Siamese twins attached at the head.
0: Oh, wow. We were
2: at a restaurant, and they came out, and they walked into the restaurant. I could not stop looking at them. I couldn't stop thinking about that. Yeah. We just wondering what their lives were like. and
0: mm-hmm.
2: My my mother was pregnant at the time. To- this, this is a Flannery O'Connor story. Oh, my goodness, as I think about it. My grandmother was with it was, it was my grandmother, my mom and me. I was a little girl and my mom was pregnant and I could not stop staring at these these women. Right? I was just fast. It wasn't like I was looking like this is gross. I, it was just I was just fascinated. And my grandmother said, uh, don't look at that. Your baby's going to turn out like that. <laughs>
0: Like if you looked at it, it would have kind of like a yeah a yeah it was like a, yeah that.
2: it was like an old wives' tale. She was telling my mom not to look because my mom was pregnant. She told my mom not to look because the baby would
1: come out like that. <laughs> really, that's that fascinating. Was the story. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about the compare that when he sees the tattooed guy and what you're talking about there, Tim. With when yeah. he finally does see the image he wants to get tattooed on his back, um, And like, is there something that's going on when he finally does see the image of the Pantocrator, you know, that image of Christ that he gets tattooed on his back? Is there something that is like fulfilling some kind of something within him that was roused when he saw the man with the tattoo, all the myth, the all the tattoos. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. So uh-huh.
2: Oh no, I think that's exactly what's happening. Right, because he talks about, and this is so, oh, she's so spot on here. He thinks the tattoo is the thing, right, that has drawn him. He doesn't understand that it has pointed him to something bigger than that. And so he keeps putting these tattoos, but then he keeps being discontent with them. And ultimately they leave him so empty with longing that he rages. That is so spot on about our spiritual lives, right, that we're all just trying to fix ourselves
1: with all the wrong things. Mm. Can we read this passage where he's looking? Because, I, I mean, I think there's so much oh, about... Oh, it's
2: so good, yeah.
1: Let's start with the part where he's in... He goes to the tattoo, um, the artist, and it starts with the artist had two large cluttered rooms. In the edition that I have, it's with just these eight stories. It's page 233. Um, towards 521. the... 521. Okay. Right. Thank you. So, um... Let's do it kind of like dialogue style. So, Tim, you want to be Parker? Angelina, you want to be the tattoo artist, and then I'll just do the narrating stuff? Sure. And
2: what
1: mm-hmm. are but the I words have a
2: tattoo artist on? voice on or, that, or, but I'll do my best. Here,
1: Angelina, you be the narrator, because you be O'Connor. I'll be the tattoo artist, and Tim, okay. you be Parker. So we'll start right. with the artist had two large cluttered rooms, and we'll just read. It's going to be maybe like a page and a half we'll probably want to read.
2: Tim, I demand a Georgia accent.
0: Absolutely. you got one coming up. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: the artist had two large cluttered rooms over a Chiropotus office on a back street. Parker, still barefooted, burst silently in on him at a little after three in the afternoon. The artist, who was about Parker's own age, 28, but thin and bald, was behind a small drawing table tracing a design in green ink. He looked up with an annoyed glance and did not seem to recognize Parker in the hollow-eyed creature before him.
0: Let me see the book you got with all the pictures of God in it. The religious one.
2: The artist continued to look at him with his intellectual superior stare.
0: I don't put tattoos on drunks. You know me. I'm O.E. Parker. You done work for me before and I always paid.
2: The artist looked at him another moment as if he were not altogether sure.
0: You've fallen off some. You
1: must have been in jail. Married. Oh. That was so funny. (laughs) Oh.
2: With, the, with the aid of mirrors, the artist had tattooed on the top of his head a miniature owl, perfect in every detail. It was about the size of a half dollar and served him as a showpiece. There were cheaper artists in town, but Parker had never wanted anything but the best. The artist went over to a cabinet at the back of the room and began to look over some art books.
1: Who are you interested in? Saints? Angels? Christ? What?
0: God. Father, Son, or Spirit? Just God. God. Christ, I don't care, just so it's God.
2: The artist returned with a book. He moved some papers off another table and put the book down on it and told Parker to sit down and see what he liked.
1: The up-to-date ones are in the back.
2: Parker sat down with the book and wet his thumb. He began to go through it, beginning at the back where the up-to-date pictures were. Some of them he recognized. The Good Shepherd, Forbid Them Not, The Smiling Jesus, Jesus the Physician's Friend, he kept turning rapidly backwards, and the pictures became less and less reassuring. One—oh, sho- I didn't catch that before. Mm. The modern ones are all meek and mild, friendly Jesus. The older ones are more awe-inspiring and terrifying.
1: And and less the less re- the, we won't, the nowadays. We want the reassuring Christ, right?
2: Right. Yeah, she's definitely making a comment on modernity there. I did not catch that. One showed a gaunt, green, dead face streaked with blood. One was yellow with sagging purple eyes. Parker's heart began to beat faster and faster until it appeared to be roaring inside him like a great generator. Hey,
1: can I pause you there? Because, Tim, and I, I know people yeah. that annoy Like, my classes used to hate when I would do that. People would be reading, and I'd stop, and I'd be like, all right, got to look at this. They'd hate it. So I apologize. <laughs> but, um, Tim, you were just talking about how the actions correspond to something that, deeper that's going on inside of them. Mm -hmm. And like, that's something she does so well in all of her stories, but this is a great example of where like, something physical is corresponding to something spiritual. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's always the mark of great fiction, right? Like, that, that this, that the physical activities of the world are, are, have deeper meaning, but she really, um, you know, leaves those moments, those actions pregnant with so much so much deeper meaning and if you just read it on the surface it can just be the action of the story right it can just be like the pathos going on but right. and it's great that way it's great from a narrative you know pathos perspective but there but on the other hand in, a, in you know in terms of a close read it's it's just such genius is the way she does that and it really gets to that whole you know t.s Eliot's idea of the objective correlative right that there has to be something meaningful some physical meaningful you know in this world representative of deeper ideas and like i don't know if there's anybody
0: that captures that the way she does yeah she's great at it there's this quote by uh anton Chekhov, the russian short story writer and he's talking about the process of writing and he says that the writer must capture the spiritual in the actions of the characters and it's the only way to kind of get them across and i just think i think that o'connor's Brilliant at that. She's brilliant at that.
1: And of course, you see it in Dostoevsky as well. Um, that's yep. a great example of it. And you see it in, um, like, you'll see it even in some of the existentialists that o- that I believe O'Connor is responding to, where they're taking, you know, the nihilism of the characters and it's being represented, you know, in, in physical, act, active ways as well. You'll see it in, like, um, uh, Camus, for example. But mm-hmm. um, it's just one of the things that great writers do. But, yeah. you know, it's the difference between a great writer and a mediocre writer, between a great book and a normal old book. <laughs> But anyway, carry on, now that I've ruined the flow.
2: (laughs) He flipped the pages quickly, feeling that when he reached the one ordained, a sign would come. He continued to flip through until he had almost reached the front of the book. On one of the pages, a pair of eyes glanced at him swiftly. Parker sped on, then stopped. His heart, too, appeared to cut off. There was absolute silence. It said as plainly as if silence were a language itself, go back. Parker returned to the picture, the haloed head of a flat, stern, Byzantine Christ with all demanding eyes. He sat there trembling. His heart began slowly to beat again as if it were being brought to life by a subtle power.
1: You found what you want?
2: Parker's throat was too dry to speak. He got up and thrust the book at the artist, opened up the picture.
1: Uh, that'll cost you plenty. You don't, you don't want all those little blocks, though. Just, just the outline and some better features.
0: Just like it is, just like it is, or nothing. It's your
1: funeral, but I don't do that kind of work for nothing. How much? Uh, it'll take maybe two days' work. How much on time or cash? Ten Parker's down. Parker's other jobs t- oh. had
2: been on time. Sorry, sorry. Parker's other jobs had been on time, but he had paid
0: ten down and ten for or every day me. it takes. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> we did Get a different
1: line. Yeah. I stepped on your line. T- ten down and ten for every day it takes.
2: Parker drew $10 bills out of his wallet. He had three left in.
1: You come back in the morning.
0: First, I'll have to trace that out of the book. No, no. Trace it now or give me my money back.
2: And his eyes blared as if he were ready for a fight. The artist agreed. Anyone stupid enough to want a Christ on his back, he reasoned, would be just as likely (laughs) as not to change his mind the next minute. But once the work was begun, he could hardly do so.
1: Oh, okay. Let's pause there. Um, There's a lot more going on that we could read, but, you know, we can't just, you know, People should be reading for themselves anyway. Um,
2: oh, the story is just so good.
1: That that bit there at the end about any any um, anyone stupid enough to want to Christ them is back would be just as likely to not change his mind the next minute is really fascinating. Just the idea of like bearing a cross, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That that the idea that we have to uh, that we're called to bear a cross, and you know, if you when you decide that that's something that you're willing to do, can you, can you change your mind? <laughs> mm. Or if you can get, to, if you get to the point where you say, you know, I say, where you say not my will, but yours. And you're, and you're willing to do that. That's not something that you, that happens just so easily that you can just cast it off. I and mean, like to really truly say, I want to bear that, you know, bear the cross. And I don't know that's what she's going at, but that's definitely, that's just what I was,
0: what I was struck by. Yeah. There. Yeah, yeah.
2: hmm yeah. And, and somehow it's all tied in with his wife, though, right? So that night, he's still thinking about the spiritual experience he has had, and he says he longed miserably for Sarah Ruth. She, she's all tied up in that.
0: Yeah. Well, and what did you guys make of that? I, I will tell you that I had a moment where I thought the story was that Sarah Ruth was somehow representative of the church. Because remember when he comes back, after the tattoo has taken place, he gets in a, he drinks too much, he gets in a fight at the bar, and then he has to go home to see Sarah Ruth after the tattoo is complete. So he goes, let me see if I can find it. He goes up on the porch of the house. He's yes. locked out.
2: I thought this was asked, going a different direction too. Didn't
0: you? I wonder yes. if you thought it was going in the same direction. So he says... Um, let me in. Why you got me locked out for? And so, three times, a sharp voice close to the door said, Who's there? Me, Parker said, OE. He waited a minute. Me, he said impatiently, OE. Still no sound from the inside. Says it again. There's still silence. I don't know, no OE. But she asks him three times, Who's there? And I thought, Three times?
2: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. It's-
0: it's, didn't it sound to you guys kind of like a, a Christmation or a, a, a confirmation service?
2: Well, yes. And the fa- okay, so in in that you you choose your saint name right, so that you choose your new name. And, and literature and as well as theology, naming is super significant, right? You, you, your name is supposed yeah. to be your true self. And so, I it's, yeah, he's he's kneeling down here and he's saying who he really is, Obadiah.
0: Obadiah, Obadiah. It culminates with. Obadiah, not O-E anymore. It's Obadiah.
2: The full name, though, Obadiah Elihu, uh-huh. right? So, I mean, that's like a Hebrew thing, right? God something. I, I should have looked that up. But uh, yes, I yes, I totally thought she was going to open the door, and his true self was going to be revealed, and they were going to embrace, and it was going to be coming home. But that's not That's what I
0: thought, too.
1: Obadiah. Obadiah means servant of God or slave of God? Slave of God.
0: <laughs> just and what does Elihu like. mean?
1: Elihu is from the book of Job. Elihu um, is my God is he. and Elihu My God a, is he? Yeah, that's what it says. My God is he, capital H-E. Um, and Elihu was a young man in the book of Job who gave a fiery defense of God's righteousness. According to, Ooh. you know, basic so websites that I'm looking name, at. So by his
2: name, he's coming in and saying, I've been converted. This is who, uh, who, who is this? I don't know OE. I am the servant of God. My God is he. This is what he's saying, right? I totally thought this was going to have a happy ending. I'm a sucker.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting is there's a part towards that, you know, right before that, where he's thinking about her. Um, and it says that the thought of her, and you just referenced this, I think to him, it says the thought of her brought him slowly to his feet. She would know what he, she would know what he had to do. she would clear up the rest of it, and she would at least be pleased. It seemed to him that all along that was what he wanted to please her, mm-hmm. yes. and this of course, mirrors the you know like the ultimate human instinct, right? Oh, I think we lost angelina no i 'm
2: here i 'm here. Oh. do you not hear me?
1: No, I, hear I you. can hear you. Oh, weird! Um, it, my Skype just did something weird, but that seems to mirror like that ultimate human instinct. So he, it seems to him that all along what he wanted was to please her, right? But that's yeah. just hinting at something deeper and richer and yeah, more meaningful, exactly. like you know the one who he actually wants to please. And so when he opens the door, he's headed home to to try to please her, but in turning towards. You know, the one who he actually wants to please, she actually is displeased. and So, the opposite, something richer happens within him, something more meaningful and longer lasting, eternal, dare we say. But in doing that, he loses loses what all along he thought he
0: wanted. Right, 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 right. I thought
2: about all those parables, you know, where you have to forsake all others. You have to leave everything behind and follow Christ. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. What Which, do you of th-
2: course, that makes sense The Flannery O'Connor is not going to end the story with him converting and then getting everything he ever wanted in a happy life. Right,
0: a happy marriage. And, oh. Because like Jesus fixed off- everything. Yeah, right, right, yeah. It could never have gone. It's funny, when you back out, when I back out and think, why did I have the expectation that it was going to be a happy reunion and she was somehow representative of the church? It could never have gone that way, <laughs> but I was just kind of caught up in the narrative. Yeah. Oh, I thought the I, same I thing, though,
2: hope. especially when he says, you know, he's got this vague feeling that something is happening, but he needs someone to interpret it for him, Yeah. so he thinks, she can tell me what to do with all these feelings, which, that seems so right to me.
0: Okay, can we, can I stretch it a little bit and say maybe she is kind of representative of the church and... His disappointment with her is kind of like the disappointment that every mature Christian faces at some point. You're like, oh, these people that I I say the creeds with, that I worship with, that I believe in God alongside, and that I practice with, oh, it's still disappointing. Like, it's still, you know, like everybody, it's just like... We're kind of a sinful bunch, and we're still trying to move toward righteousness, and we fail. Is it possible that that's that that's a decent reading of Sarah Ruth?
2: I do think it's a possible decent reading, although I went a slightly different way and thought that no, she does represent the church, and is Flannery O'Connor saying that the church can't recognize true Christians—the real
0: thing? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. of course, Sarah.
1: Sarah. The meaning of the word, the name of Sarah, is princess, right? Right. So I don't
0: know. That was
2: also two biblical names, Sarah and Ruth, two faithful women.
0: And and, I took I take Sarah in the story of Abraham as Sarah is the one who's she's cynical about the promises of God.
2: No, you're right.
0: Yeah, you know. Yeah.
2: So it's almost like Sarah and Ruth are two sides of that, right? The faithful one and the cynical one. And which one is she going to be? And he thinks he's Ruth, and she turns out to be Sarah.
0: Oh, that's good. That's great. And Ruth is – she's an outsider. She's not an Israelite. She's kind of like grafted in because, remember, her husband dies. um, But Sarah's loyalty.
1: Like, just if the name Sarah is princess, so like you could see Sarah, like if Ruth is the outsider, Sarah's the, the insider, the royalty, if you just yeah. look purely and, at the meaning. And
0: she's the one that doesn't get it. She's the insider, yeah. but she right. doesn't get right. it. Ruth is outsider and she does get it. Right, right. Which is another Oh,
2: that fits maybe, the theme.
0: Maybe that's part of the reason why we can have hope for Sarah Ruth at the end, that her second name kind of denotes, I don't know, some sort of hopefulness that she'll eventually be brought into the people of God again. Yeah, it doesn't feel like Flannery's reading.
2: condemning her, but I think she's definitely saying she has to change.
1: Yeah. Hey let's let's go through the ending here too. Um and we can do the let's start with um for me it's two forty two. It's right the second to the last page I think. And it starts with Parker turned his head and uh, we can just...
2: 528 uh, for us, Tim. Thank so,
1: you. Tim, you be Parker again. Angelina, you be Sarah Ruth this time. And I'll be the narrator just to kind of... Ooh,
2: all right. I'm switch, put my icicle cell phone.
1: Swap that. <laughs> Parker <laughs> turned... a cool, onion cold himself. boy. <laughs> yeah, you're onions. Yeah, exactly. Parker turned his head as if he expected someone behind him to give the answer. And, of course, he, he's just trying to get into the house and she's not letting him in. The sky had lightened slightly. And there were two or three streaks of yellow floating above the horizon. This is actually this is reminds me of uh, the last story
0: uh, and when she's out by the pig. Yeah. Nature changes also during yeah, yeah. Uh, the father and the uh, granddaughter view from grandpa. the woods. from all, the, all this, road. all this.
2: The tree line thing is always a big. That's a big turning mm-hmm. point.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, then, as he stood there, a tree of light burst over the skyline. Parker fell back against the door as if he had been pinned there by a lance. So, this, man, this is very like a very specific moment here, with a very physic, you know, very specific kind of a description. Like there's something real going on there. Yeah. Who's there? Oh, sorry.
2: Oh, that's me. Thank you. And I was working my way up for that. Okay, here we go. Who's there?
1: The voice from inside said, and there was a quality about it now that seemed final. The knob rattled, and the voice said peremptorily.
2: Who's there, I asked you.
1: Parker, hmm, good. Parker bent down and put his mouth near the stuffed keyhole. Obadiah. He whispered, and all at once he felt the light pouring through him, turning his mm. spiderweb soul into a perfect arabesque of colors, a garden of trees and birds and beasts. Obadiah. Is, I, I hate
2: to interrupt it, but that was, that's the language when he saw the tattoo artist. So it's coming full circle. That is what he thought when he saw... At the beginning, when he was 14, the tattoo, that's, what, that's how he described it. That's what he was always trying to achieve on the outside with the tattoos, but he couldn't do it. He says at one point that when he stepped back from the mirror, instead of seeing the perfect arabesque of colors, that he just saw a big hodgepodge mess.
0: Obadiah Elihu. The door opened,
1: and he stumbled in. Sarah Ruth loomed there, hands on her hips. She began at once.
2: That was no hefty blonde woman you was working for, and you'll have to pay her every penny on her tractor you busted up. She don't keep insurance on it. She came here, and her and me had us a long talk, and I...
1: Trembling, Parker set about lighting the kerosene lamp.
2: What's the matter with you, wasting that kerosene this near daylight? I ain't got to look at you.
1: A yellow glow enveloped them. Whew. Parker put the match down and began to unbutton his shirt.
2: And you ain't going to have none of me this morning, or shut this near your, morning?
0: Shut your mouth. Look at this, and then I don't want to hear no more of you. He removed the shirt and turned his back to her.
2: Another picture. I might have known you was off after putting some more trash on yourself.
1: Parker's knees went hollow under him. He wheeled around and cried.
0: Don't lo- look at it. Don't you say that. Look at it.
2: I done looked.
0: Don't you know who it is?
2: No. Who is it? It ain't nobody anybody I know.
0: <laughs> I love that line. Yeah. It's him. Him who? God.
2: God? God don't look like that? What
0: well, do you know how he looks? You ain't seen him.
2: He don't Wait, look.
1: He's he's so right when he says that. Yes. Yeah.
2: yes. He don't look. He's a spirit. No man shall see his face.
0: Oh, listen. This is just a picture of him.
2: Idolatry. Idolatry. <laughs> Inflaming yourself with idols under every
1: green tree. I can put up with lies and vanity, but I don't want no idolater in this house. And she grabbed up the broom and began to thrash him across the shoulders with it. Parker was too stunned to resist. He sat there and let her beat him until she had nearly knocked him senseless and large welts had formed on the face of the tattooed Christ. Then he staggered up and made for the door. She stamped the See broom. See
2: how good that is? She just beat Jesus. She beat Christ. Mm. He's being persecuted for Christ. It's all the same thing. Ah, so good.
1: <laughs> she stamped the broom two or three times on the floor and went to the window and shook it out to get the taint of him off it. Like like she would have if she had swept up like less crumbs or something. Mm-hmm. Still gripping it, she looked toward the pecan tree. Pecan, pecan depends on where you live. And her I'm eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And her eyes hardened still more. There he was, who called himself Obadiah Elihu. Leaning against the tree, crying like a baby.
2: Oh, this was so good.
1: And so, if Obadiah Elihu means slave of God, and and um, and what is it? Uh, what did, what do we say Elihu is? My God
2: is He. Yeah, my
1: God is He. The the idea of him leaning against the tree, crying like a baby, and and that again, O'Connor keeps going back to this idea of being a child, right? Becoming like a child, like yes. what Christ talks yes. about in the Gospels. The idea of. Faith like a child, and, and when a character, either it's either it's it's either a child who's changing, or it's a character becoming like a child. So often in her books, and it's like yeah, they think they're so much better than they are, and they have to become a child, or it's somebody, um, not you know somebody else seeing somebody else as a child, and it's actually like in seeing them as a child, they're seeing them in the way they should be seen. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense
2: sense
1: and that seems like she just keeps going back to it
2: well i think that that fits with the idea i was talking about earlier about having wonder right that's i i also i think that's part of what it means to have the faith of a child is that you have a wonder about it
1: hmm. i want to talk a little bit about this image which is you know it's a Byzantine crisis. The Pantocrator, as you said, anybody that wants to know what this would look something like can just—if you don't know already—can just Google Pantocrator, and you'll see this image come up. And it's traditional, um, you know. How tra- do you spell that, David? P A N T O C R A T E R or O R? I can't remember which one. No, K oh.
2: K N and O. P A N T O K A T O R. Oh, you
1: can find it. I've seen it. Really? I've, I've I've always seen it with a C. That's interesting.
2: Well, maybe it is. I, I googled it before the show, and I saw C and K, but I had always seen it K in the catalogs. So maybe it's a Greek thing.
1: Yeah, maybe if you look at oh, well, Wikipedia has the C, so I was just going by that. But um, okay, you can see it's a traditional, as it says in the book, it's a Byzantine, it's Byzantine iconography. Um. Mm-hmm. So that's it, so
2: fascinating that she chose that image.
1: It, it really is, and that's why I was going to ask you about it. You know, this is, if people who are listeners who are from the, either Byzantine Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, either from whatever tradition, the Russian um, or the, you know, the more Byzantine side of things, um, will, will recognize this style. But one thing that's, you know, uh, Protestants and, you know, sometimes the Catholics and, and, you know, folks who are more part of, you know, more evangelical circles might not, might find images like this to be um Different or weird or whatever, and they'll say things like, um, I hesitate to bring this up, but they'll say things like, well that's not what like what she says in the story that's not what Jesus would have looked like or that doesn't look like a real person because oftentimes mm. iconography looks flat, right and like the characters themselves don't have don't seem to be making they seem a little expressionless, and they're purposefully painted in that way to be expressionless, there's no, mouths are not open, there's very little actual action going on, you know there's not movement very often, sometimes those icon icons of stories or whatever. But um why what do you how do you think that plays into this? And do you think that she is is saying what do you think she's saying about these kind of images in this story?
2: Tim you want to go first?
1: And I don't know if there's an answer. I'm just wondering well, it's just striking she chose this image for a reason.
2: It's very interesting because she's Roman Catholic and didn't choose a Roman Catholic image.
1: Well, that's one of the yeah, exactly.
2: And, and so I wonder is is she being deliberately sort of ecumenical? And we've talked about this before. She mm. she thinks of herself as a Christian writer. I don't I don't think she's trying to pigeonhole you know Catholic versus everybody else. That for her it's more true religion versus false religion than than. In, in any particular denomination, so I, I wonder if she's like deliberately not, you know, trying to make the story not be perceived as pro-Catholic, and so she chooses a Byzantine picture, which I mean, even now would be rare, but certainly at the time she wrote the story would be very rare, and maybe she's just picking that because it's ancient, and that's what she's going for is yeah, ancient Christianity it certainly is very old.
1: Honor. It's probably... Yeah. yeah.
2: It, it may, in fact, be the oldest image of Christ.
1: Yeah, that's, yeah, and so it would go back, it could go back to what, would that be like the third of the fourth century that they think? I can't, re- or even older, I can't remember exactly when the...
2: Yeah, I don't remember either, except it's very, very old. So it yeah. would have been a unified church at that point anyway, maybe that's also something.
1: Oh, that's would've interesting, pre- yeah, like pre-split?
2: Pre- pre-schism, yeah, so it would have been a unified ancient church.
1: And I, uh, yeah... There's a- doesn't look like I can find how old it is. Well, like while I'm sitting here recording, <laughs>
0: <laughs> there's another, you know, there's that tradition around the Panto Crater um, that in some icons or like one of the famous icons, the eyes of Jesus are asymmetrical. You guys know what I'm talking about—that
2: he has two different expressions on either side of his face.
0: Two, to, yeah, I wouldn't say expressions. I would say one eye is very it's very, uh, how would you say it? One eye is looking straight at you. Yeah. And the other seems to be, it's not looking straight at you. So I, I think I heard a lecture on this by, gosh, I think it was an Orthodox, an Orthodox lecturer was talking about, um, the, the asymmetrical eyes in this famous icon of the pen crater is meant to represent the both the human and the divine nature of yes, Christ yes. in one. So if you look at it kind of if you just give it a superficial glance, the icon looks like it's poorly painted because the one eye is very clearly it has more detail, it is gazing directly at the viewer and the other seems to be a little bit elevated. And I've heard and I surely O'Connor would have known about this kind of tradition that The speculation is that the two different eyes have these kind of dual perspectives in Jesus, the finite and the infinite. And I have heard, even though I've not been had direct contact with the icon, that you can kind of walk anywhere in the room and the eternal eye as it's painted, it's looking at you no matter where you stand in relationship to the icon.
1: Yeah, I think that's and I think that's the idea. Is wherever you are, if you look, y- y- you can't avoid the gaze of Christ, really.
0: Right. Which absolutely fits the the tattoo. Oh, this is that. so
2: interesting. What, okay, so I'm reading about it while you are talking. I gotta say this: the oldest known surviving example of this icon comes from the sixth century, and it, has, it was stuck in some monastery. But something was painted over it, and in 1962, it was cleaned, and they found the image of the pancreatator under that. So this would have been maybe like in the news three or something.
0: years, it would have been three years before Parker's Back was published. Yeah. Not at all before Parker's Back was published. Huh.
1: And then, of course, yeah, the so I don't know if she would have been aware of this exactly. I'm sure she would have, but yeah, that would have been you know four centuries before the Great Schism of 1054, mm-hmm. when the East and the West split. So you the idea of a unified um, church thing that you were talking about, Angelina, would be right on. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then, of course, the idea of the Christ's eye moving, it, we've talked a lot about the idea of like Christ pursuing, right? That God pursues yeah. these characters throughout the stories, and that's consistent with that as well. That no matter, so like if she were to be looking at this tattoo, and of co- assuming, of course, the, the tattoo artist knew what he was doing. <laughs> then the idea would be that you could, wherever she was in relation to that, if she's looking, that eye is always searching after her. and But yet, she's not seeing it. And so the question is, what happens as that eye continues, metaphorically, of course, as that eye continues to search after her? Does she eventually respond? Does she eventually right. look back?
0: There's a... Man, she is never... Um, gosh, how do I say this, this story seems to be maybe even more kind of densely packed with allusions and metaphors than than her others, which is saying something, because they're always densely packed.
1: Yeah.
2: We should also say that in that image, Christ is holding the New Testament.
0: Hmm. And that's that's significant because...
2: I don't know, but... I don't know. I mean, it's like it's not. It's not. It's not Jesus coming in wrath, or anything like that. It's. It is Christ Almighty, and so it is an imposing thing. But He has the New Testament with Him. I mean, there's so many different images, and so it's not you know Christ the Shepherd, but it's not Christ coming in wrath in the final judgment either. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, what do you think of? Um, this is a touchy subject, but I, I wanted to make sure to ask about it. Um, the idea of. Um, What she says, she calls it idolatry. And of course, I don't know if you've been following the whole, you know, like, uh, Hank Hanegraaff became Orthodox recently, and the Bible Answer Man, and people have been responding to that, of course, and one of the big responses is the idea that um, icons and Orthodoxy are an example of a a sort of form of graven images, which is always something that is going to be mentioned with, you know, um, in response to iconography, whether it's in the Byzantine Catholic Church or... Um, or really even like the statues in the in the catholic church and then orthodoxy and anywhere that a image of a saint or you know right a christ or you know a god or whatever is 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 presented in in a church is going to have that response to it and i'm sure there are some of our listeners who are very uncomfortable with that idea and that that's that's fine that makes you know sense that that's we come from all different traditions so that's one of the things we just have to talk about but uh, what do you, where is she, is she just, is this character, you know, who's saying that, who many of our readers might sympathize with, is she, is O'Connor presenting her as just being blind when she says that it's idolatry, or or what's going on there? Like, how should we respond to that, and how sometimes some of us might respond the same way?
2: Well, first of all, I don't think there's any chance that Flannery O'Connor had not heard that uh, criticism leveled against the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, I grew up in the South, and I heard it all the time, and I wasn't Roman Catholic, but I, you know... I, that was the charge in the South of Protestants against I grew up in a predominantly Roman Catholic area.
1: Yeah, um, Louisiana, yeah, yeah. French,
2: French, French part of Louisiana. The English part is is Protestant. Um so there's there's no way. There's no way that she doesn't she you know she doesn't hear this all the time. But um, you know, even amongst those Christians who have a tradition of iconography, there's a huge debate about whether or not those things should be tattooed on your body.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, sure.
2: So um With many Christians saying no that it should not, but um, so I don't. For me, when I read that kind of stuff, I I just I just don't get caught up in the literalness of it because I don't think that Flannery O'Connor is intending a debate here about whether or not you can have a tattoo of Jesus on your back. You know, it's just so metaphorical to me that he's just you know brimming over with the image of Christ on himself, and she can't she can't see it, and worse, she accuses it of being
1: sinful. I guess what I'm saying is, do you think that she is in judging? Sarah Ruth or in asking us to judge Sarah Ruth and and Sarah Ruth's response to this um, is she judging readers who might also say well that's idolatry Hmm. and and it's a a harsh question for for anybody who feels that way or or whatever I'm just wondering how you think O'Connor would respond to that I
0: don't
2: know I feel like that's a tough hill to die on I don't I don't don't know
1: hey I'm not asking you to I'm just curious (laughs)
2: No, I mean no. I mean about Flannery O'Connor that that it seems odd to me that that would be the hill she would literally want to die on is images in the church. When when it seems like her vision of Christianity and what she's trying to do is just so much so much bigger than particular theological differences. Does that make sense?
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: It would be like but, if her well, last story before she died was a vigorous defense of the Pope. Like that's just not who Flannery O'Connor is. No,
0: it's not. I read it as. Um, a passing blow against Manichaeism, which is this consistent theme that, um, Flannery O'Connor is all about like this, this making Christianity into Manichaeism, um, is something that she felt had sort of enveloped the Protestant South. So Manichaeism is kind of runs along with Gnosticism in the ancient world. It's a dualistic cosmology. It's, good versus evil and good is spiritual and bad is material and physical and over and over. I mean, almost all of her stories have to do with someone coming to a spiritual reckoning because of a physical occurrence. And so I don't think this is a comment about icons or tattoos. I think this is a comment, um, Mm -hmm that Sarah Ruth is kind of mired in Manichaeism. She's just part of that kind of default view of Christianity where the good and the physical are antitheses of each other.
2: Yeah, and then the Christian response to that, to Gnosticism, is the incarnation. Right. Which is why we, we see her... Vigorously incarnating spiritual truth in her stories, right? Right. In a way mm-hmm. that's uncomfortable. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and, and icons from a theological perspective are, are supposed to be about the incarnation. Um, that because Christ is God incarnate, then um, it's okay to have images, which are other types of incarnation. But it's never okay to have an image of God, but Jesus is okay because he is The incarnation of god he has a physical body and therefore it's okay to portray him in physical ways that's Mm -hmm. that's the theological argument but it fits what you're saying about because the incarnation is the response to manichaeism right the physical realm does matter and it's so funny right because in modernism what we've done is we've separated the incarnation in two so on the one hand you have um unbelievers nihilists who say the only thing that's real is the body and the physical. There's no spiritual. And on the other hand, you have modern Christianity saying the only thing that's real is the spiritual, and our bodies don't even matter.
0: Yeah.
2: I mean, I remember, here's another one of my moments as a child, I remember going to my grandfather's funeral and standing over his dead body, and my father, as a perfect Gnostic, patting my dead grandfather's body and saying, this is not your grandfather. Wow. father is a spirit, and he is with God now.
1: Well, with that, we should probably end.
0: <laughs>
2: now that everyone's terrified about my weird upbringing, explains a lot, though.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, people, when you walk down the hall, Angelina, kind of people whisper behind you, that's Angelina Stanford. She's post-gnostic. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tim, you got to get going. Give us a final thought before we let you go. I have a thought about next week's program. I will say this about Parker's back. I like Angelina I re- I remember this one it sounds like a little bit better than Angelina did. I love this story. This 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 kind of goes in my top 3, maybe my top 2. It's just it's superb. This is this is Flannery O'Connor at the absolute height of her creative powers and like the most exacting for me of her, of executing her spiritual vision. It's just great, it's so good. Um, here, can I make a proposal for next week and we can talk about it off the air if you guys would like. So the, the last book that we will, the last story that we will read in this collection is Judgment Day. And Judgment Day is a reworking of the, one of the very first stories she's ever written called The Geranium. I wonder if we might read both of them. Sure,
1: oh. sure. I mean, I'm up, I'm up for that. We can compare them. Yeah. <laughs> if you're listening, and don't have you have the complete volume, it should be in that. I don't yeah, the
2: very first story, but
1: I don't think it is in A Good Man. It's hard to find that first collection that came out. So I think
0: I don't but, think it is.
1: It's either in the you'd either have to find it in the complete set, or you would have to find it online. as I recall, it is readily available throughout the interwebs. So. Um, People should be able to find it there, but yeah, I think that's a good idea. I think, um, given that it's as you said, it's a reworking, and it's the last thing that she was working on, um, it's definitely worth worth comparing those two things. But Tim, get out of here. You got to go. All right, you guys have a great Tim. Go enjoy your
2: sunshiny day.
1: Thanks, I will. Bye, Angelina. Before I head back to the concrete expanse that is a convention center. Uh, would you like to um offer any final?
2: F- yes, uh I just think she's a what a remarkable woman. I, I don't I don't think that if I was faced with the last two weeks of my life, I would spend them trying to finish my stories. <laughs> My kids and I always laugh about people who ask the question, "You know, what would you do if you had two weeks to live?" And they're like, "I would go here and I would go there." And and they all look at me and I say, "Yeah, we know what I'd be doing. I'm in mean, the fetal position on the floor crying that I'm about to die. Like I would. This would not be the time for my, you know, dream vacation." <laughs> so so I'm just amazed that the doctor sends her home to die, and she's like, "I'm going to finish these stories." That's just just what a remarkable woman.
1: I do. I, yeah, man. As Tim said at the height of her creative powers, even as her body was at its lowest point.
2: She had to be in a lot of pain at the end
1: there. Mm, Yeah. Well, she, she was in a lot of pain for a lot of years, so I can't imagine what it must've been like at the very end. Um, well, Angelina, thank you for another great episode. I do need to get back to this convention center. So, um, you know, I'm sure I'll be bumping into a few of you as, as, you know, as I'm, as I'm there before we, you know, before we get this episode up. So thanks to everyone who has been listening. Uh, thanks to Roman Rhodes for sponsoring again. As I said at the beginning of the episode, before we came, before we actually came on, um, make sure that you uh, leave a comment under the Facebook post for this episode, and we will—they will be giving away um, more units from their um, Old Western Culture series. So thanks to them, uh, and of course thanks to Tim and Angelina um, for for another great episode. Thanks to everyone who's been listening and subscribing, and and all commenting and joining the conversation in whatever ways um, you're able to do that. For Tim McIntosh, for Angelina Stanford, and for all of us here at the Searcy Institute, I am David Kernsink. Very well on Close Reads on the Searcy Institute Podcast Network. We'll talk to you next time.